Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, February the 20th, 2024. What to do about the crimes of the past? collective crimes or crimes against certain types of people, certain types of certain skin colors or sexualities. Uh, should one pay reparations? Should one apologize? We did a show a couple of weeks ago, A Case for Reparations with David Montero, has an interesting new book out, controversial, no doubt, The Stolen Wealth of Slavery, A Case for Reparations in terms of uh, America paying generally for the great crime, the historic crime of slavery. What about when it comes to the persecution of other types of people, gay people, for example? My friend Jonathan Rausch, who's been on the show several times before, has an interesting piece in The Atlantic, quite controversial also, entitled The U.S. Should Apologize to Gay People, uh, a book about the crimes against gay people by the American government and what the U.S. should do in the 2020s. John is joining us uh, from uh, Canada. John, um, is there an equivalent between the kind of argument you're making in your recent Atlantic piece and the arguments that are raging and continue to rage about reparations and slavery, or are they different categories? The, the offenses, the nature of of the abuses of the crimes is quite different and quite unique in, in each case. But the nature of the remedy is, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's similar in America's past and in case of, of gay and lesbian Americans, um, terrible, terrible things were done for which there have been no apologies, no accountability. Um, there are no even records of it. A lot of it has been forgotten. And as with other groups, such as Native Americans and uh, Hawaiians and people who are Japanese Americans who were interned and victims of lynching, and one could go on and on. There's even been an apology uh, that Massachusetts issued in the 1950s for the victims of the witch trials. The United States needs to begin to clear its debt for the terrible, terrible persecution that gay and lesbian Americans suffered. You begin the piece, it's a short piece, but very strong and, and, and very emotional about uh, a U.S. Foreign Service um, uh, official called Jan Kirch. Tell us about him and, and what he went through. Jan is a native of Czechoslovakia who escaped communist rule with his father and his sibling when he was quite young, about 10 or 12. And he will tell you that his proudest day was when he took the oath of American citizenship as a teenager. He remembers what it was like to live under communism and his way of giving back was to serve his country. At the age of 27, he was on his way to his second post in South Africa when he was ordered to a debriefing at headquarters in Washington. In the first half hour or so that seemed like it was routine and then the two interviewers pivoted very sharply and said, Do, have you engaged in homosexual relations since age 18? And what followed was nine hours of interrogation about who he had sex with, um, 
He tried to get him to inform on other people. He asked for a lawyer. He was told he didn't need one, that if he was just honest, he'd soon be on his way to South Africa. This was, in fact, a lie. He was instead sidelines, parked in a, in a civil office, um, doing kind of cultural exchange work for nine years while he fought to get his job back. He never did. He lost in courts. Eventually, he was able to reapply and get rehired in the Clinton administration, um, but he lost 10 years of his life. He was forced to come out to his parents. That went very badly. The first year, he lost a huge amount of weight. He lost his sex drive. He had depression, and he couldn't get another job because the government wouldn't give him a recommendation. And he's still around. I mean, this, he's not an old person. He's, he's in his 60s. He's, you know, a couple years older than you and me. Of Never been an apology for any of that. There's never even been a formal reckoning. We had uh, our, our mutual friend, uh, Jamie Kirchick, on the show. He's been on a couple of times as well. His new book, uh, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington, was very powerful. But it seemed to me, from what I can remember about the book and our conversation, to be mostly about the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, What's astonishing about the, the, the Kirch example is it happened in 84. Did that surprise you? I mean, you, was this something that you, was this a story that, that you were familiar with in the, in the mid eighties? Oh, of course. Yes. I had other friends in the foreign service who were telling me back then in real time about what they called the goon squad. This was a State Department security team that, that made it its job to root out homosexuals. The military had exactly the same thing. We all knew people who had faced discharge or uh, been forced out of the military service. It wasn't until 1995 that the Clinton administration finally granted security clearances to gay people. Until then, we couldn't work as government contractors or security agencies, anyone who had a security clearance. Oh yeah, this, this went on until it's as recently as 2011 when the military stopped hounding and evicting homosexuals. This, this is our lives, Andrew. This is not ancient history at all. And, and was the same thing going on in law firms, in corporations, in, in, in oil firms, biotech firms? In the 80s? No, not so much. Most of the, not all, uh, a lot of the private discrimination simmered down. But then, of course, you had the AIDS epidemic. You may remember the movie Philadelphia, in which Tom Hanks played a gay man who was fired uh, once, once it became clear that he had HIV. So some of that went on. But what people need to understand is that, that what we saw, starting in the mid-40s and and going on for really six plus decades was an all of government, all of society campaign to erase homosexuality from every corner of society. It began in the federal government, then it spread to state and local where even more of the damage was done, but it was also religion. It was the psychiatric profession which diagnosed us as ill until 1973. Um, it was the culture, it was an unbelievably widespread campaign. You cite a book, which I'm not, I haven't read myself, but I've heard on, it's very good. And it's come up in other conversations we've had on the show, The Lavender Scare, The Cold War Persecution of Gays and Lesbians in the Federal Government by David Johnson. How much of this was bound up in the paranoia of the Cold War, uh, John? Was it, 
was it was it the same paranoia or was it separate did they exist in parallel this, they, they, this fear and hostility this persecution of homosexuals and of communists it's interesting it, they were they were bizarrely intertwined um, in the until the late 1800s america didn't particularly persecute homosexuals that wasn't really in our dna then as you started seeing urbanization and you'd see groups of gay men, people started feeling threatened. Then you saw some persecution and that went on through the 20s and 30s. But things really take off with the Cold War when you now have a lot of urbanization, you have visible congregations of gay people. And somehow in the American mind, homosexuality and communism become intertwined and sometimes even equated in the public mind as as subversive threats you know one is they're undermining our society our way of life they're godless they threaten our children and our future in some way and so yeah that really kickstarts the campaign uh, against gay people in the 1940s how much of this is bound up in eisenhower's america in in your piece you write about his uh dwight eisenhower in, in 1953 his infamous executive order 1045 10 uh, 10450 um what you call one of america's most grotesque civil rights violations a lot of critics of 50s america and eisenhower suggest that if you you peel the surface if you look under underneath what was really happening and this prosperous post-war America, you found paranoia, hostility, obviously, to communists, uh, gays, also, of course, to any anyone who wasn't a, a cultural conformist. That's certainly, that's certainly true in the case of, of gay and lesbian people. Um, you know, starting in the 1945 or so, the FBI begins branding gay people as deviants and J. Edgar Hoover, who may himself have been gay. Well, no, he may, who certainly was gay. I, mean, I want to <laughs> okay, go with that. J. Edgar story because it seems to me that that somehow captures the, the tragic absurdity of what was happening. Uh, and, you know, the, one of the memos from Hoover, he was such a weird man. He demanded at that point that all the offices in the country report the names and identities of homosexuals serving in government or suspected deviants. And he demanded that they be circled or underlined in green pencil. So the FBI began doing that. Congress began investigating and demanding the firings of people and that all began. But it's really the Eisenhower executive order in 1953, which puts the full imprint of the federal government behind the campaign to wipe homosexuality completely out of the government. Homosexuals are identified as unemployable by the federal government. If you're gay, you're out. And that leads to what's been called the lavender scare, of course. But was that, one, of the, one of the assumptions is that gay people were more vulnerable to the Russians because they had more to hide? Or was it simply distaste for at least at that point, unconventional sexual practices? Well, I think it was mostly the latter plus, plus fear. Um, but the pretext was that gay people were security risks. Of course, the only reason gay people were security risks is that they were made to be security risks because the government was going to fire them if it found out. Um, as Frank Kameny, the great gay civil rights leader, pointed out in the 60s in his campaigns, the, this, this, the whole thing was entirely a construct. 
And ultimately, it was about the obliteration of homosexuality in American life, the complete extinguishment of gay people. John, you're a great defender of liberalism. What does it tell us about post-war liberalism, the fact that mainstream liberals were paranoid about what people did in their bedrooms out of public sight? Well, it tells me what we're learning again, Andrew, um, and what you're reporting has, has been so important in emphasizing, which is we can never take these, these liberal values and systems for granted. Uh, there's, there's always going to be the next panic. Um, just today, I was reading about the big plans that people at the Heritage Foundation are making for, for huge, huge sweeps against immigration if there's a Trump second term. So, no, we're not finished. When you say we're not finished, is this built into the DNA of liberalism or critiques of liberalism? Because it seems as if, and, and, and maybe I'm making an unfair generalization, is this hysteria against gays and, 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 and witch hunt against gays in, in government went on at the same time as Eisenhower was in power and America was fighting a civil, uh, a cold war, um, and celebrating itself as a place of, of individual freedom. America was and still is a fearful country, a country where, where people often look out, look for other groups. They can provide a story to them about a sense of threat. Why are you not better doing better than you're doing? Why is your lifestyle endangered? Who do we blame for this? And, and that unfortunately was targeted against, against gay people. Um, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s. I, I want to bring up the J. Edgar Hoover uh, story too, because it is particularly odd that here was a man who lived with his deputy, who was clearly, if not sleeping with his deputy, uh, 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 leading a gay lifestyle, and he was leading this crusade against uh, gay people, and from the, the Beverly Gage biography, I'm not sure if you've read it, seems to suggest that he actually tried to mostly avoid it, whereas he was really hard on communists and on African-Americans. Well, I don't know about trying to avoid it because the archives are full of memos from Hoover talking about the extreme danger that quote-unquote deviance posed to the Republic. I, I don't know that he was sexually prurient per se. I don't actually know that much about Hoover, and frankly, I don't want to. Um, but but he does seem to have conflated active homosexual homosexuality with some kind of of subversion, some kind of threat to the security of the country, at least in government. But then they also the FBI would work with local law enforcement. So they did this little dosy dope. -si -do. People don't realize this. What happened in the federal government was just the tip of the iceberg. That was maybe five or ten thousand people fired, which is a lot. But hundreds of thousands of people were persecuted at the state and local level by local cops. And they would then tip off the FBI and the FBI would perform its own investigations and find leads to fire federal employees. And then those people would then inform on people at the state and local level. So they had this big rolling machine going, which everyone who is associated with it or touched by it, including Jan Kirch, will use a word like totalitarian to describe it because it was networks 
of informants and of threats. And it was every level government. And it wasn't just in your bedroom. These laws were used to make it effectively illegal to congregate. The bars were raided, for example. People lost their jobs routinely because of a bar sweep by police. All they were doing was socializing completely legally, gathering in parks. Any visibility by homosexuals at all could put you and did put you in legal jeopardy. And hundreds of thousands of people were fired, um, investigated, um, condemned, thrown out of their families, on and on. What about the race issue, John? Um, we did a show a couple of months ago about Bayard Rustin, a very distinguished African-American civil rights figure who was also relatively openly gay. Did the issue of race and the issue of homosexuality, were they, you use the word intertwined, inseparable, or did they exist in parallel? You know, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but my understanding is that those two issues were mostly kept apart. That, that gay people, homosexuals, as, as we were called then, perverts and deviants, were seen as pariahs and hot potatoes, and that the civil rights movement had more than enough on its plate dealing with its own problems without taking up the cause of homosexuals, which essentially no one did in the 50s and 60s. It really wasn't until Frank Kameny comes along in the 1960s and begins the Mattachine Society and begins to fight for gay rights that you begin to see anything as simple as even a small peaceful protest. So um, gay rights happens later and it happens, I think, mostly separately. We're speaking with uh, my old friend, Jonathan Rausch, uh, contributing writer of The Atlantic, important new piece we're talking about. He just had it, just came out arguing that the U.S. should apologize to gay people for its persecution, what he calls a totalitarian system of, sexual, of sexuality that existed after the Second World War. Uh, I want to thank our friends, our liberal friends at Liberties, uh, Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics that does a very good job, like John Rausch, uh, supporting and articulating the importance of, of liberalism in the 2020s. Going to run a short feature on Liberties. And then we'll be back with John to talk about apology, what it can and should mean in the 2020s. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with John Rausch, the contributing writer at The Atlantic, author of an important new piece in The Atlantic about why the U.S. should apologize to gay people for the crimes of the past. John, the, ar the article is very strong, and it talks about the tens of thousands of people who were persecuted, particularly in government, talks about government suicides and all sorts of other terrible events. But this idea of apology, um, what is it? You're, you're writing, I think, a book now on, on Christianity. How do liberals think of the idea of apologizing versus perhaps religious people or conservatives? Is there a liberal way to apologize? 
That's an interesting question. I would think, yeah, I, I would think that that there might be. For me, what we're talking about is government apologies for government acts. And I don't expect to go back through the generations and try to dredge up the names of people who were fired in the private sector three and four generations ago. But, but I do think that liberalism requires accountability to the actual citizens who actually face discrimination and unfair suffering at the hands of the government. Um, and those people are still walking around. Jan Kirch is, is one of them. I can name others, every gay person knows people who are faced with, uh, with this kind of sanction. So to me, that's how you do it. And it should be done formally. It should be done by an act of Congress, a resolution of apology. Those have been introduced. They haven't gone anywhere yet. I hope someday they will. But there also needs to be accountability in the form of knowing what went on. We have never accounted for the numbers of victims. We don't know their names. We don't know their stories. It's all been swept under the rug. It's hidden in places like FBI files, which it's like pulling teeth to get that stuff. You have to file, in many cases, FOA, FOIA records, and then you have to file lawsuits. There needs to be what's sometimes called a truth commission. I don't really love that term. Well, the truth commission as in South yeah. Africa? Yeah, as in a body empowered with a government charter, though it should be public-private, empowered to become a clearinghouse for the records so that it could gather from all over the country, from private sources, you know, the documents that are in people's attics, the things they've inherited. And it would have privileged access to the government sources. It would be able to unlock the records of places like the FBI and the police department so that we could begin to name and number the victims. We still don't know, even to within a specificity of five figures, how many people were fired, how many were arrested, how many suicides there were, how many lobotomies were performed. Um, we should know that. Well, you're helping people know it, John. The counter argument, I'm not sure if it's a counter argument, but the concern might be, and, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, that what happens if the government becomes just one long uh, truth commission where African-Americans on slavery, Native Americans who, of course, were murdered in their millions, women in the 19th century who weren't given the vote, homosexuals, at what point can the government or should the government get down to governing? And given the crisis of institutions and trust, at what point do all these truth commissions actually undermine government itself? Well, it's an interesting question, but I, I guess I would say that so far they haven't. Um, for most of those other groups you've named, there have been extensive inquiries, both by the government and the private sector. There are, of course, departments and universities across the country that look in great detail at what happened to African-Americans and what happened to women. There's an African-American museum on the National Mall, which is a very important place as a repository. So these things haven't paralyzed the country. And I, I would argue that they make the country stronger because one of the things that the liberal republic should do is educate itself about its mistakes in order not to repeat them. I guess the odd thing about well, the, the, the difference between 
not getting a job in government because you're black or Jewish or female versus losing your job or being persecuted because you're gay is you generally, it's not obvious who is or isn't gay. Should the government also apologize to all the different races and groups and genders who, who weren't given jobs in government? Well, again, I don't know about jobs in government, but there already have been apologies to most of those groups. For example, there is a formal apology to the victims of, of lynching. Uh, there is a principle that, you know, you, you don't want to apologize necessarily to everyone as a class going back forever, have, you know, reparations for everyone going back forever. And, and I understand that. And for example, the reparations to Japanese Americans who were interned went mm -hmm. to those people and their actual families, not to anyone who's Japanese American. So we can have that conversation. But as I said earlier, there are lots of people still walking around who were discharged from the military for no reason other than they were gay. And not all of them got full honorable discharges either. There's thousands of people in the country, veterans who serve their country, who got less than honorable discharge, who have not been able to upgrade those discharges. So there's a lot of accountability that still needs to happen. John, what would a... An apology mean to someone like Jan Kirch, who, as you've noted, his life was in some ways ruined by this. He might think to himself, well, that was a bit late. <laughs> you know, as you put that to me, Andrew, I realize I failed to ask him that question. So I don't know what an apology would mean to him. I'm certain that, that he would appreciate it. And I know that he is glad that I told his story. There, what happened to him happened to thousands of people, and only a handful of those stories have ever been told. So I know he's glad about that, that, he's, that, that, that at least he will die with his story in public that this injustice was done to him. Um, but I can speak for myself as, as a homosexual American, born in 1960. The world I grew up in, I was, I was clinically insane until I was 13 years old. We were defined by psychiatrists as, as sociopathic, as having a personality disorder, completely warped my childhood and my sense of myself deep into my 20s. And, and I can tell you that it would be very meaningful for my government to own up to the mass campaign that it waged against us, and even more meaningful for the government and the private sector together to begin to start doing the work of telling our stories. There is a campaign that is still ongoing. This has not ended, Andrew, and it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking to someone like me. There's, there's groups like Moms for Liberty going around the country trying to remove mention of homosexuality from school curricula, school libraries, and public libraries. In one town, a book written by an author whose last name was Gay, that book was pulled off the shelves by librarians fearing that it could cause controversy. And imagine the mindset that it takes to be that paranoid, right? So the campaign to erase homosexuality and gay and lesbian, now LGBT plus people from American life is not over. It is still going on. And that's why it's so important that there be a reckoning. And the reckoning for you, you'd want an apology also, even if you never applied or never persecuted for a job in government. Oh, I just want to, I'd, I'd like to see something like uh, Senator Kane's bill, which was introduced in the last session in the Senate passed. And, and that takes, you can go read it online, anyone can. It's a Senate resolution. It should be a joint resolution of Congress. 
most of it is simply a chronological listing of what the federal government did to gay people and what the results of that were. And then at the end, it says, in effect, the US government is sorry for that. It shouldn't have happened. Now, most people in America won't even notice that, but it will have been a formal reckoning by the US Congress. You live in DC, uh, John. You're all too familiar with the gridlock there. How realistic is any of this? <laughs> In the Washington, D.C. of 2024, I mean, you're no great fan of Donald Trump. You've been very critical of him. But it seems to be one issue, perhaps, where he's less offensive than some of the other issues, certainly when it comes to immigration and other race-based issues. Homosexuality, per se, yes. On on transgender, uh, it's a whole different story. By tweet, he ordered the military to roust out all transgender people, for example. so it's it's not as if he's been anything like a, a friendly force. But if if you're asking, um, is it realistic for Congress to do anything right now? Well, maybe you know we, we can we can hope. I'm I'm not going to give up talking about this story. And and the reason I talk about it is is I hope for that the government will reckon with what it do, does, and I hope that we'll get a kind of truth commission or a national archive to compile the stories. But at a minimum, I can tell the story. You might be astonished, Andrew, by the number of people, including gay people, who read the article I wrote and in, in all good conscience, in all good faith, say that they had not understood the extent, the sheer scope of the campaign to obliterate, to erase homosexuality and homosexuals from American life. We just got to talk about that. We got to tell that. We got to make sure people know. Was it official, though? Did it come from on high? I mean, you mentioned Eisenhower and this uh, this this order. Can, can we? It came from. Uh, we're in the business of blaming. Are, are there individuals who can be blamed? I mean, J. Edgar Hoover, of course, who is a complicated character, to put it mildly. Well, there certainly are individuals, and we know a bunch of their names. Um, but importantly. I've used the word totalitarian to describe this. And and by that, I mean that it engaged every level of society, high and low. It engaged, of course, the federal government, the US military, uh, the security agencies, but it also engaged state and local law enforcement. It engaged the medical profession, which starting in the 40s and on through the 70s, sometimes used procedures like electroshock and lobotomy on gay people. it engaged religion. So this was a society-wide effort, very loosely coordinated. You know, it wasn't like some, you know, some Sieg Heil type of government effort, but nonetheless extremely efficient in, in every walk of life. There was no place where it was safe to be a homosexual um, in American life. So to me, that's one of the reasons why some kind of public statement and reckoning is, is so important. It's not as easy as saying, well, J. Edgar Hoover did this, so he was a bad man. Many, many people did this. What about the responsibility of of doctors? I mean, we all know about the Kinsey report that reshaped public opinion about homosexuality. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think his his famous report noted that he thought around 10 or 15% of of people were homosexuals. What did dissenting doctors therapists, psychiatrists, what did they say? Well, they they didn't say much. There was really in the 50s and 60s, 
there was not much of a defense in the scientific world of gay people. Now, it's important to say that that the first major blow against the psychiatric consensus that we were sick and needed to be cured was came from within the scientific establishment. It was a study performed in the early 50s by a psychologist named Evelyn Hooker, who took you know, things like Rorschach tests and personality tests and gave them to a bunch of known homosexuals and a bunch of known heterosexuals, and then gave them to panels of psychiatrists and asked them to identify, okay, who are the sick people here? Who are the homosexuals? And they couldn't, they had no idea. But it took two decades for that research to percolate into the profession. And it took protests by gay and lesbian people who demanded that the psychiatric profession clean up its act. It finally did in, in 1973. Finally, John, uh, all this brings to mind uh, John Stuart Mill's 19th century book on liberty, perhaps the book that most captures the principles of modern liberalism. Uh, Mill notes that every, every generation has cultural assumptions of ways of thinking that differ from previous ones, and whatever was considered outrageous in one generation is considered normal in the next. Should this example warn us of, of, of how, we, how we are persecuting, quote unquote, the other? I mean, the transgender issue obviously is an interesting one. Who, uh, who, who in the 2020s are the equivalent of the persecuted homosexuals of the 1950s in America? Is it immigrants? You know, I wish I knew, um, but it's the nature of these things that, that so often we don't see them in real time. It, it takes the arousal of voices often on the margins, like people like Frank Kameny, who was fired from his job at the U.S. Army Map Service in 1957 and fought, fought to the Supreme Court, fought in the Congress, started the Mattachine Society of Washington, ran for Congress protested the psychiatric profession. It, it takes those people to tell us. The one that, that troubles my conscience the most, I'm sure you've done many shows on this, is, is animals. And the yeah, I was going to bring animals up. Um, and, and that keeps me up at night. I'm, I'm a meat eater. And, and I think I may live to regret that. Um, but, but I don't know. To me, to me, the lesson is that even very good people, Dwight Eisenhower was a good man and a great president. I have the world of esteem for him. Um, and he was not a hater. And many of the people who did these things, the psychiatrists were not haters. They all thought they were doing good. They all thought they were doing what was necessary to defend the country. And that people like you and me need to keep our ears tuned to those marginal voices out there that sometimes squeak and say something really bad is happening and give them a second hearing. And might this underline the importance of the transgender issue too i know that it's divided the homosexual community in some ways yeah well there's so much to it and it's so complicated but at a minimum it should make us all very humble and very careful and remember that we're talking in the midst of all the controversy about medical treatments for minors and the nature of sex and gender always to keep in mind that we are talking about actual human beings and, and lived lives. Yeah, and I think you finally you bring up the word 
being humble, humility, which is a word that I'm a little suspicious of often in the way it's used. But in the way you're presenting it and the way that Mill presented liberalism, real liberals are humble. They're, they're humble in the sense that they acknowledge that they don't know the truth and that it's not for them to determine how pe other people should live their lives, right? And that we ourselves are fallible beings. And even at our best and even at our most virtuous, we can make terrible mistakes.